This is District Sentinel Radio, that loud newscast on the left. I'm Sam Sachs. I'm Sam Knight. We are broadcasting out of the intern. Nate is not a worker. Studios in Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. We're still out of town, folks. We're on vacation. We'll be back on August 27th. Between now and then, we're releasing Sentinel Cast interviews on our SoundCloud. For today, we revisit an interview from April, just after the anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombings. We talked to the ACLU's Cade Crockford about lingering doubts around the official story about the bombings and what role the FBI may have played behind the scenes. I just want to start the interview by reading... One of the first pages of James Comey's new book. (laughs) Uh, it's, It's his dedication in the book in which he says, quote, To my former colleagues, the career people of the Department of Justice and the FBI, whose lasting commitment to truth keeps our country great. So I hope that uh, the next 30 or so minutes of this interview help destroy that notion of the FBI's commitment to truth making our country great. (laughs) That's great. Well, we uh, are not we are not bringing this up because of James Comey's book or because of a P tape related line of thinking, though, if you have thoughts on that stuff later, feel free to discuss it. Please, we're, we're, we're not here to... Well, we might be here to talk about the P-tape. Let's be honest, we're always ready to talk about the P-tape. Uh, but Sunday is the fifth year anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing. So uh, the attack is clearly on our minds for that reason. But also, there is some recent news in the trial of Noor Salman, the widow of Omar Mateen, who shot up the Pulse nightclub in Orlando in 2016. You might recall it was a story uh, that had an immediate impact on the presidential election and fueled President Trump's Islamophobic and anti-immigrant rhetoric. Well, it turns out that in Noor Salman's trial, we find out that Omar Mateen's father was an FBI informant right up until the Pulse shooting yeah, and I don't know about you, but when I heard that, I immediately thought of one other person, and that's Tamerlan Sarnayev. Yeah. Is that a question? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, mean yeah, I definitely, yeah, I thought of that, too. I mean, it was astonishing to learn that um, Mateen's father was an FBI informant, and for a long time, for apparently over a decade, 11 years. Um that was quite something. Also, we learned in that prosecution, which, by the way, was just ridiculous. They should never have prosecuted that poor woman. According to her defense attorney, she was like, she's like, you know, almost intellectually disabled. She's not very bright. She had certainly been abused by her husband, Omar, um, physically and emotionally for many years. And, you know, they apparently even had cell phone location records showing that she had never been to the Pulse nightclub. Nonetheless, one of the linchpins in their prosecution against her was the claim that she had scoped out the joint with him um, and that so, you know, she was involved in the conspiracy to plan the attack. That was not true. Um, And she was acquitted, thankfully. But, yeah, I mean, it's astonishing. You know, one thing that I found really incredible about their decision to prosecute her is that they seem to think that 
nobody that it doesn't make a difference at all if facts like the like the you know the fact that Omar Mateen's father was an FBI informant for 11 years come out um they don't seem to be at all concerned that those sorts of things will emerge in criminal prosecutions you know if i had been running the US attorney's office and i knew that um i would probably decline to prosecute just so i could keep that really really ugly fact a secret from the public um, because it definitely would not have come out if it hadn't been for their decision to prosecute her. So anyway, yeah, I mean, other astonishing facts from that case that uh, apparently not only was he an FBI informant, a paid FBI informant for 11 years, but he actually leaned on the FBI not to indict his, or the the U.S. attorneys not to indict his son. Apparently, hmm. the FBI, as we know, had investigated Mateen, and reports suggest that they were actually going to try to get him indicted on a charge of uh, making false statements, which is, of course, something that the FBI does. Um, you're seeing it now in the Russia-related Trump investigation, corruption stuff that Mueller is doing. You know, if they don't have evidence of, for example, a plot to shoot up a nightclub against someone, but they think that they're a dangerous person, they can basically, you know, by using various skills that they've honed uh, expertly over the years, get people to say something that's not true, um, and then charge them with making a false statement to a federal employee, which is a a crime, a federal crime that's punished by a few years in prison. So apparently they were going to try to prosecute Omar, Omar Mateen on a uh, false statements charge, and his father, this guy who had been an FBI informant for over 10 years, reportedly stepped in and intervened and said, you know, please don't prosecute my son, and they didn't. I mean, that is just shocking information. So anyway, yeah, it definitely makes me think about what's going on um, in Boston and the the sort of... Failure to address the the really disturbing unanswered questions about what happened five years ago and in the years prior to that with Tamerlan and Sarnaya. So, Cade, you live in the Boston area, and you uh, have been interested in civil liberties and law enforcement abuses for a very long time. And I'm just wondering, as you saw this whole story unfold and, and the whole city devolve into a panic and, and everything else in the aftermath of, of the case, when did it occur to you that this looked really sketchy? How soon after the bombing did it, did it sort of dawn on you, oh my God, Tamerlan uh, Tsarnaev has some really sketchy links to the feds? Well, things started... Things were weird all week. So so what happened for folks who don't remember or for, for people who weren't in Boston at the time is, of course, Marathon Monday was uh, April 15th that year. Patriots Day. Yeah, Patriots Day, um, which is celebrated as a holiday in Massachusetts. We all get off work and school. Internate um, is fist pumping. Yeah, exactly. Well, well no, we take revolution seriously over here, okay? You guys play the um, baseball game early. Hats. What? <laughs> you play the baseball game early. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, anyway, the the marathon happened, as it always does, at around 3 o'clock, something like that. Um, the first explosion happened, and then a few minutes later, the second one. Um, you know, initially there was obviously panic across the city. Nobody knew what was going on. Um, the next few days were really bizarre because, uh, you know, there were... There was FBI swarming all around, you know, law enforcement from all over the region descended on Boston. Um, we sort of went about our daily lives normally throughout that week. 
And then all of a sudden, on Thursday night, uh, so four days after the attacks, some really weird stuff started happening. Um, there was a report of a carjacking. Um, there was a report of um, a robbery of a 7-Eleven in Cambridge uh, that, you know, some people were saying may be connected to the bombing. Um, there was a, a law enforcement official, an MIT police officer, who was killed on campus at about 10 o'clock on Thursday night. And then, even more bizarrely, there was a shootout in a residential neighborhood in Watertown, Massachusetts, which is about five miles from downtown Boston, a suburb of, of Boston. Um, and in that shootout, Tamerlan Sarnayev was killed, and his little brother, Chahar, escaped somehow, miraculously, despite the fact that the place was swarming with cops, um, to what we later learned the next day was just a house a few blocks over where he apparently had been hiding under a tarp in a boat in someone's backyard. Um, he was, of course, discovered by the guy who lives at that house. Um, Friday was one of the strangest days of my life. I think it was probably one of the weirdest days of many people's lives in the Boston area because despite the fact that this shootout occurred in Watertown, Massachusetts, which is, again, five miles from Boston, um, the city and the state declared effectively martial law, ordering people to remain in their homes all throughout the Boston region. Um, you know, I was living in Jamaica Plain in Boston at the time, and it was like seven miles away from Watertown, and there was literally no reason why I shouldn't leave my house. Um, but despite that, um, it was, I think, a very effective way of law enforcement controlling what people were seeing unfold in the in the community, um, which I think probably is relevant in ways that we still don't totally understand, because um, everybody was basically inside their homes and not looking to see what was going on in the streets. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that day was really bizarre. Uh, you know, there was a, a huge manhunt to find Jahar, despite the fact that, again, the... the shootout that he had escaped the night before was swarming with police and um he's a you know he was like a 19 year old kid who was bleeding from various places um and had only gone about two blocks from where the shootout took place and had been hiding there the whole time um they finally called what they described as like a they lifted the shelter in place order at around five o'clock and the guy uh in watertown who's who owned the boat, went outside to smoke a cigarette, noticed that there was blood on the side of his boat, um, walked over, peered inside, and saw Jahar bloodied inside the boat, called 911. Um, there proceeded to be an absolute insane rush of every law enforcement agency in eastern Massachusetts and the FBI descending on the place. Um, they, despite the fact that they had uh, infrared images from above that pretty clearly showed that there was no weapon in the boat, um, somebody fired among the law enforcement side, and they riddled the boat with about 100 rounds. It's pretty Jesus. much a miracle that the kid survived. Um, he did. They, they pulled him out. I think he had a gunshot wound in his throat, among other gunshot wounds. But 
Yeah, he survived. They pulled him out, and then there was, like, the beginning of what became, you know, the Boston Strong Victory Parade that <laughs> unfolded that night in the streets of Watertown, where everyone congratulated law enforcement on their heroic victory, despite the fact that, really, it was a colossal fuck-up on their part. And we only really started to understand the depths to which law enforcement had screwed up in the um, subsequent weeks and months as not only folks like me who were confused about some of the details of what the FBI had told the public because they didn't match up to other things that we knew or what the FBI had said um, that week, but also some local law enforcement started muttering about some of their concerns, um, specifically concerns related to suspicion that Carolyn Sarnayev had been working for the FBI. Um, we're not sure when or when he stopped working for the FBI. Uh, concerns about the fact that the FBI investigated Tamerlan on suspicion of uh, terrorism at the request of the Russians, apparently. Um, you know, concerns related to the fact that despite the, uh, the FBI's putting Tamerlan on a terrorist watch list, he had been able to leave the country and travel to Russia to go to Dagestan, which is an area where there is um, significant uh, discord between the Russian government and um, Cade, if I can stop you for a second, he was actually yeah. on he was actually on two watch lists. He was on Tide yeah. and the and he was in something called the Tex system. Right, and so those watch lists should have alerted um, law enforcement to the fact that he was leaving the country and and should have alerted them again when he came back. And there is some indication actually that when he came back from Dagestan um, in July of 2012, that the CBP Customs Border Patrol uh, was not notified of his um, presence on these watch lists because someone, dun -dun -dun, maybe the FBI, we don't know who, had um, not removed him from the watch list, but had changed, I guess there are ways you can toggle what um, level of, uh, you know, suspicion someone's under. So they hadn't removed him from the watch list, but according to reporting that WBUR has done, they um, made it such that when he came back into the country, the CBP official would not be notified on screen that he was on a watch list, and so he would not be pulled aside um, for extra scrutiny. So, you know, there are a number of reasons why I think uh, people in the Boston area think that Tamerlan was working for the feds, um, you know, not least of them, that bizarre fact that he was on a terrorist watch list, but that somehow um, he was not pulled aside for extra screening and, and somebody made the decision to to ensure that CBP would not be notified that he was on this watch list automatically when he came back into the, into the country, but also other things. Um, the story is really bizarre. I mean, back in 2011, actually, weirdly enough, on September 11th, 2011, one of Tamerlan's best friends and two other people were killed in this really ugly, gruesome um, triple murder in a small community near Boston and Waltham. Um, they had their throats slit. Apparently their tongues were pulled out of their throats in what I guess is called a Russian necktie. Um, and marijuana and cash was, like, dumped all over their bodies. Apparently I've heard that there was a lot more money in the house and that some of it was probably stolen and it was made to look like um, some sort of, you know, religious killing or something. Uh, but in any event, uh, Tamerlan was best friends with one of those guys. He um, 
according to the families of those victims, never came to the funeral, despite his close relationship with um, one of the deceased. And um, some of those folks said that they had suspected him of maybe being involved in those murders, but law enforcement never interviewed him, apparently, uh, which is bizarre. So there's, you know, there are some suspicions that he may have been a federal informant going all the way back to 2011, and that that's one of the reasons why he wasn't interviewed uh, with respect to those murders. Of course, you know, people have to remember that this is Boston we're talking about. This is the FBI that protected Whitey Bulger, who was an FBI informant, a mobster in the city for many years, knew that he was committing various murders, not just here in Massachusetts, but all over the country, and... um appears to have protected him during that entire time. So, you know, the idea that the FBI would protect an informant who's involved in committing murder is actually not remotely conspiratorial. Um, it has yeah. happened in recent history in, in the city of Boston. So um, this, they're definitely concerned about that, yeah. And this was also uh, an essential part of Johar Zarnayev's defense saying that Tamerlan uh, was working with the FBI. And of course, Johar was convicted on a lot of secret evidence that even the defense wasn't allowed to see. And as they were preparing their appeal, were denied access to a lot of this secret evidence. But you described a lot of what happened prior and how Tamerlan was able to seamlessly move out of the country and into the country and throughout all these uh, various uh, immigration offices and everything. Either the government is is completely incompetent in how it checks its books and how it's checking each other, or he did have some relationship and was getting cover throughout this entire episode. Yeah, certainly. I mean, either this is a case of almost criminal levels of incompetence or um, the FBI is hiding something, right? And it doesn't want the public to know that, yes, in fact, it did have a much more extensive relationship with Tamerlan that went far beyond the, um, I believe, two interviews that the FBI has copped to having uh, performed with Tamerlan and his family during their investigation of him um, on suspicion of terrorism. Again, uh, I don't think that we would even know that the FBI investigated him at all, were it not for the Russian government telling the U.S. public that uh, the Russians notified the FBI that he was a danger and that he should be investigated. I think that had Russia stayed quiet about that, we probably would still not know that the FBI had investigated him. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a possibility that um, their relationship was much more extensive than than what the government has admitted to. And, and again, that's not just... Um, you know, my suspicion or the suspicion of some journalists around here. It's also the suspicion of some law enforcement officials who have um, even told Boston Globe columnists that they should feel free to print uh, the fact that many people in local law enforcement here suspect that um, the FBI is not being honest about its relationship with Tamerlan. And, and there's even some really weird stuff about what happened um, Thursday night, which was the night that all of the crazy shit started popping off in, in the Boston area. Again, that was four days after the bombing happened on Monday. Uh, the FBI had claimed throughout that it had no idea who committed the bombings, um, but you know, despite the fact that on, on Thursday it was still maintaining it didn't know who the bombers were, um, Cambridge law enforcement have indicated that uh, the neighborhood where Tamerlan and Jahar lived was swarming with FBI um, on that 
evening at around 5 p.m. on Thursday. And again, that's five hours before this Cambridge uh, MIT police officer was killed. So so I think some cops in the area are pretty ticked off um, that the FBI was not being forthright with them about maybe having known a lot more about who Tamerlan was than they were admitting to, not just publicly, but also to their um, fellow law enforcement at the state and local level. And, and, you know, some people have suggested that had they um, acted sooner, the events of that night would not have unfolded. You know, one police officer was killed. Frankly, it's astonishing that no one was hurt or killed um, besides the two brothers in the um, shootout that took place that night. Although, one Boston police officer was apparently, they say, injured by a bomb, um, kind of minorly injured at the time, and then died sudden, suddenly while he was working out in the Boston Police Department gym a year later. So, um, yeah, there's like a lot of really good stuff in this case that um, nobody has really been able to explain. So. I was certainly watching the news unfolding about Jim Comey, you know, calling Donald Trump a, a routine liar and just thinking to myself, damn, you know, that's really a lot for for us to digest from someone who ran the FBI, which is an agency that, you know, is not exactly known for being forthright with the public. Yeah, those chaotic events that you described make a lot more sense if you think about the Fed's actions at the time as trying to cover their own ass. As Sam brought up, the, it's either incompetence or just a massive cover-up. And you got to lean towards the uh, latter just because of the number of coincidences. And you bringing up uh, uh, or the, the angle of the Russian government and, and their involvement in this, from that WBUR piece, uh, it seems like Tamerlan may have also been an informant for the Russians because, and this is from uh, Michelle McPhee's Maximum Harm. Uh, a lot of the interview is based on her book. And I know she uh, has close ties in the law enforcement community, so take from that what you will. But according to McPhee, after Tamerlan was in Dagestan, quote, seven high-level terror targets were killed by the Russian Interior Ministry. Coincidence? Maybe. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's super weird, right? I mean, so uh, Tamerlan went to Dagestan in, I think, uh, January of 2012. He was there for about six months. He came back just two days before the 180-day deadline would have um, put his green card status in jeopardy. You're not supposed to be out of the country for more than six months if you have a green card. Um, So, yeah, he returned in July. Again, the circumstances of his return, very strange. He was on a terrorist watch list, yet nobody seemed to care that he was coming back to JFK from a region that the U.S. government considers a terrorist hotbed. Um, But, yeah, you know, when he was there, um, reports indicate that he met with a variety of people and that he was essentially the kiss of death, that after meeting with them, these people were killed by the Russian security services. Um, It's pretty weird. Another thing that's odd is that in the um, trial of his little brother years later in federal court in Boston, um, I believe the defense introduced uh, tapes, audio tapes, that Tamerlan had made while visiting with people in Dagestan, which also is strange. You know, if you're not a uh, working for a security service or you're a journalist or conducting some sort of academic research, it's a strange move to record your conversations with terrorist suspects. Um, 
that you're meeting and greeting with. Uh, but Tamerlan was apparently doing that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, whether he was working for multiple U.S. intelligence agencies, um, whether he was working as sort of a double agent, you know, for the FBI or maybe also the CIA and the Russian FSB, um, it's really unclear. You know, just on that CIA point, there's something that drives uh, conspiracy theorists absolutely insane about this case, which is that um, Tamerlan's uncle, the guy who, I don't know if folks remember, in the days after the brothers um, were identified and Tamerlan was killed and Jahar was arrested, um, they have, have an uncle who worked for a variety of think tank kind of places associated with the CIA um, and lives in the D.C. metro area, I believe, maybe in Bethesda, I think, um, went on CNN and sort of blasted them and said, like, you know, they're traitors to this country and this country welcomed them with open arms and, you know, they're not my family members anymore. Well, he was married to a woman who's the daughter of Graham Fuller, who used to be the director of operations, as far as I can recall, for Central Asia um, at the CIA. So, yeah, it's just, there's a lot of weird stuff about this case. And, and, you know, I make no claims at all about whether that relationship has any bearing on what unfolded or is meaningful in any way or is just a coincidence. But it certainly is a strange coincidence. And one of... The other strange things that you had just started to touch on, and then we we got into some other stuff, is Ibrahim uh, Tudoshev, who was killed by FBI agents uh, as he was uh, allegedly about to write a confession to those murders that you, in Waltham murders that you had mentioned uh, earlier. This is, seems to have been completely forgotten about, despite the extremely strange circumstances around his death. Yeah, so there seems to have been a mop-up operation after um, Tamerlan and his brother were alternatively killed and apprehended. Um, every, a lot of the people that Tamerlan knew um, were basically disappeared from the United States. So uh, Ibrahim Tadashev, um, another Chechen immigrant, was, like you said, killed by the FBI in Florida. But then a lot of other folks who they knew, immigrants also, were deported. Um, by by the federal government. So, really strange. Um, yes, the FBI alleges that uh, Ibrahim Tadashev was about to write a confession implicating not just himself, but also Tamerlan in those 2011 murders. Um, I should just back up and say, Michelle McPhee reported, I believe it was in May of 2013, so just a few weeks after the marathon bombings, the first connection, um, in the public's mind, at least, between Tamerlan and Sarnayev and those 2011 Waltham murders, um, which until then had not, you know, received national attention at all, had been just a, a local matter. Um, she reported then that local law enforcement were telling her suddenly, or I shouldn't say local, we, I, I don't think we know if it was local or federal, that law enforcement was telling her that they suddenly had phone records and other electronic surveillance evidence tying Tamerlan to the 2011 Waltham murder. So I just want to back up and remind you that a few minutes ago I said Tamerlan was not interviewed as a suspect in 2011 during that investigation. Um, and then suddenly, after the marathon bombings, the government says that they have um, cell phone evidence tying him to... 
uh, or leaks rather to a friendly reporter that the government has cell phone evidence tying him to those murders. So I, I thought that was sort of bizarre. Um, especially because family members back then said that they had actually told the FBI that they should, or rather local law enforcement, that they should uh, interview Tamerlan and consider him perhaps as a suspect in those crimes. Um, certainly the historical cell site location information was available to investigators back in 2011, but they appear to not have looked at it. Anyway, fast forward a number of years, again to May 2013, the um, FBI as well as some folks from uh, task force operators on uh, state law enforcement and Massachusetts State Police um, went down to Florida, rushed down to Florida to um, interview Ibrahim Tadashev in connection to, they said, the Waltham murders, um, which suddenly, you know, after two years plus of not having any any information on, they said, uh, they had, you know, claimed that they were cracking the case. And yeah, they said so they claimed that uh, Ibrahim um, was confessing, was implicating now dead Tamerlan in those murders, and that he suddenly flipped out and violently attacked this FBI official, uh, despite the fact that there were three armed law enforcement agents in the room, um, and basically tried to kill them, and that they had to shoot him in self-defense. So they shot him, I think, seven times, including like what appears to be an execution shot to the back of the head. Um, so yeah, that's weird. Uh, <laughs> pretty weird too. Um, his uh, Ibrahim had had married an American woman whose mother, um, in just sort of the, one of the weird tidbits of this story, um, stood outside the federal court where uh, Johar Sarnayev's trial was taking place on a, on many days, holding a sign that said, you know, that had a picture of Ibrahim, and they it said, you know, they killed him because he knew too much. Hmm. So, wow! Take from that what you will. Uh, I, 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 there's another thing I want to bring up uh, with regards to uh, Tamerlan's immigration status and him coming and going, uh, which is the fact, and this might speak to motivation for this whole thing, as as WBUR laid out uh, in its investigation. Um, Tamerlan was go- he was returning to a country that he had applied for asylum to flee and that right cause, that cause should have ra- right and that should have raised a red flag uh for even the most basic sort of border patrol person if 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 someone is returning from a country that they said they were previously fleeing from and th- the whole point of this is that Tamerlan may have been doing this for to finally receive his citizenship and his application was still pending at the time of the bombing and then subsequently his death. So I was wondering if you could speak to uh, the possible motivating factor here, um, the, the Fed's sort of dangling citizenship for Tamerlan, and, and then that being a, uh, uh, what could have fueled this whole thing. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, Michelle McPhee, who I should just say, um, I take her reporting with a grain of salt or maybe a whole, you know, heaping of salt. Um, She does have a lot of, as you said, sources in state and local law enforcement, which I think gives her a window into this um, clusterfuck that a lot of people don't have because, you know, the state and local law enforcement officials were obviously working um, with the FBI to the degree that the FBI would give them access to information about what was going on in this investigation. 
Um, and she seems to conclude, or at least floats the hypothesis and presents some evidence to support it, that, yes, um, the U.S. government, the FBI, had been working with Tamerlan as an informant, um, trying to, you know, pry information out of him about um, folks in the Muslim community in Boston, um, Russian-speaking immigrants in the city, because obviously Tamerlan spoke Russian, um, maybe even folks in the gang and drug world. Uh, he was involved in um, the the boxing world and knew a lot of people who were involved in the sale of drugs. So, you know, there are a number of different areas in which the FBI may have been interested in, in um, his collaboration in terms of collecting information about things the FBI is interested in. So, uh, yeah, the, the theory that Mich- uh, Michelle McPhee floats, and I think, you know, definitely could be sounds plausible, is that the FBI was working with Tamerlan as an informant and, as you said, promised him citizenship, maybe, in exchange for his cooperation, which is something that he really wanted. You have to remember that Tamerlan was going to, uh, I think, go to the Olympics on behalf of the United States as a boxer, and then uh, his dreams were crushed because he he wasn't a citizen, so he wasn't allowed to fight. So I think becoming a citizen was really important to him um, for professional reasons um, related to his boxing career. So he, uh, you know, may have gone to Dagestan on behalf of uh, some intelligence agency. It's not clear which. Um, again, he could have been working as a double agent or working both for the FSB and the U.S. intelligence agency at the same time. Um, and then he came back in July of 2012, and the dates of uh, what we know about his interviews with U.S. immigration services um, suggest that after he came back in July of 2012, um, in fact, he was not granted citizenship, that I believe uh, U.S. Customs was concerned about a domestic violence arrest. Um, he had been arrested, I think, in 2009 for beating up his girlfriend, um, and they were concerned about that and so said, you know, we need to look into this a little bit more, do another couple interviews, and according to McPhee's reporting, he was really pissed off about that, and the theory is that he then uh, began planning his attack. You know, I think one thing to keep in mind about Tamerlan himself is that the government has um, portrayed him, and, and frankly, even the defense uh, in his brother's trial portrayed him as a conspiratorial thinker, someone who was, you know, reading Alex Jones and Infowars, Info um, and someone who was highly critical of the United States um, foreign operations targeting Muslims in, in a variety of Arab and Muslim countries. So, you know, it's a it's a messy it's a messy set of events, um, and it's totally not clear what actually did happen. But yeah, that's Michelle McPhee's main theory in her book, which you know that he was promised citizenship, that he did a lot for the FBI and maybe for other intelligence agencies to get that citizenship, and then um, you know it wasn't given to him, and he said, you know what, fuck you. Um, that's one theory. I have no idea if it's true. It's plausible though. It certainly is plausible. So to kind of wind all this up, what are the chances that we do find out more about this case? I mean, we we learn more through the the trial about about the Paul shooter as we started in his father's ties uh, to the feds, and then I remember during the Garland shooting, the the Pam Geller. Uh, contest shooting uh we learned later that there was a a federal agent there at location at the event taking pictures yeah Yeah. taking pictures um large percentage of terrorism convictions are 
achieved through the use of informants. In a lot of these cases, the informants are like setting up the the acts, providing the bombs, uh, encouraging these people to commit them. And assuming there were ties with Tamerlan and federal agents for, you know, maybe maybe the feds were trying to recruit Tamerlan for some other projects. And it got out of hand. It created a blind spot for them. I mean, just the way terrorism is prosecuted now and the way the FBI traps people, how important is it to find out the answers to this case? Oh, it's hugely important. I mean, it's hugely important for a number of reasons. One, because the use of informants um, in federal law enforcement is just completely out of control. I mean, the fact that nothing was done after Whitey Bulger uh speaks volumes, I think, about about how little attention Congress actually pays to the activities of um, federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies with respect to their use of informants. I mean, that's that absolutely should not have been allowed to happen, and um, there was really no accountability. Um, there, were, you know, basically nothing changed after that, and it certainly enabled this type of thing to happen again. If if suspicions about Tamerlan having been an informant, again, those suspicions residing with local law enforcement are correct, and you know the suspicion that maybe he was involved in those 2011 murders um, is also correct, and that he was protected by law enforcement um, because of his capacity to inform in a variety of ways. That is just really unacceptable. You know, the federal government should not be paying people, collaborating with people in investigations, protecting them um, when they're killing people, when they're, you know, shedding blood um, in our community. So um, that's one major issue that, that uh, this case highlights. And the other, frankly, is um, is the role that the crime itself plays in the national mythology about the war on terrorism, uh, the the unique danger, so-called, that Muslims pose to people in the United States, and um, the the fact that people think that there's no limit, really, to the amount of power or money that we should give to agencies like the FBI. Um, if you look closely at this case, if the facts about what actually happened come out, it's going to eat away at the rationale for fighting the war on terror the way that we've been fighting it, um, for giving the FBI endless amounts of money and endless amounts of power to conduct these types of operations. Um, I think Thomas Fuentes, who used to be an assistant director at the FBI, put it best in, a, in, a, in an interview with HBO filmmakers in a film called Newburgh 4, which is about the first high-profile sting that took place um, where the FBI paid an informant to basically, you know, coerce some poor uh, African-American Muslims in the city of Newburgh, New York, into um, agreeing to participate in a fake terrorist plot that was co- totally constructed and driven by the FBI. Um, Thomas Fuentes in that film just owns up to the reason why they do it. He says, I'm paraphrasing, yeah, we, you know, my motto is keep fear alive. It, you know, Jesse Jackson said keep hope alive. Well, I say keep fear, fear alive. If we don't uh, have cases like this and we don't make the public afraid effectively of this looming terrorist threat, then we're not going to get what we want um, from Congress. And, and I think that's really what it boils down to. So if we were to have an honest accounting of what really happened in this case, I think it would, it would be really important because it would eat away at some of those justifications. Cade Crockford with the ACLU of Massachusetts. Follow Cade on Twitter at one Cade. You can also check out Cade's blogging at Privacy sos.org slash blog. On behalf of the Sentinel News team, we wish you the very best Patriots Day this weekend. Do they have green beer? No, that's Pat.
Scotty's Day, man. I, I just figured Boston, they always have green beer on deck somewhere ready to uh, go. No, but I ran the Boston Marathon and someone threw beer on me. Holy oh, shit. Oh, my God. Yeah, so I ran like 16 miles thinking like beer is awful. <laughs> that, that is awful. Well, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave you to go read Jim Comey's book. <laughs> I can't wait. Take care, guys. That'll do it for the show. Remember, regular newscasts resume on August 27th. We'll be back in D.C. so you don't have to be.